This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 9. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of kind. from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the ninth episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique firm. I've decided to start calling us a boutique firm because I think it sounds cool. We're a boutique firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. We've been doing this for more than 20 years. My law partner and I were reminiscing a few days ago, and her son starts college in the fall. She started at the firm as a paralegal when her son was two years old, and now her son is off to college. She had such an amazing legal mind that I told her she really needed to get her law degree, and that if she got one, I'd make her a partner. She did, and the rest is history. And that can all mean just one thing. I am one heck of a good guy to work for. So if you want to work with me on anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap, Please feel free to call me at 714-954-0700 or contact me through the website californiaslaplaw.com or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. That's morris at toplawfirm.com. It was a great anti-slap week at Morris & Stone. In the last episode of the California Slap Law podcast, episode 8, I discussed our case of the evil yogurt maker. In case you missed it, I changed the facts slightly to be able to tell you the story without violating any confidences and I made the people involved two yogurt shops. Our client had reported the other yogurt shop for a zoning violation and for using an organic trade symbol without authorization. And our client had distributed anonymous flyers telling the neighborhood that the evil yogurt maker was lying about his yogurt being organic. Everything our client did was privileged, and everything he said was true, 100% true. But that didn't stop the evil yogurt maker from suing our client for defamation. I decried that the evil yogurt maker was even able to find an attorney willing to sue for defamation, and I decried that an attorney would file what was so obviously a slap. But since the case was business versus business, I used the case to discuss the elements of CCP section 425.17, which exempts certain businesses, uh, excuse me, certain business cases from the slap statute. Well, I'm happy to report that as soon as the anti-slap motion was filed, the evil yogurt maker's counsel cried uncle, and the case appears to be going away. So a victory for the anti-slap motion against the evil yogurt maker. Now, an attorney simply cannot know anything about the anti-slap statute and file this sort of action. So I always picture in my mind the moment when they open the envelope containing the anti-slap motion, read the caption, and say one of two things. Wait a second, an anti-what? Or maybe they say, oh crap, I forgot about that stupid anti-slap statute. I don't know which one we evoked in this case, but I admit it makes me smile a little. But as fun as that was, it paled in comparison to our other anti-slap of the week. I'm going to use this case as a springboard into today's subject, the stay on discovery. We represent a client in a breach of contract case, and our client was an executive at a company who went off to start his own competing company, so the company he originally worked for is trying to keep him from doing that. Unrelated to his employment at the company, our client had purchased a few residual streams and the company is required to pay those residuals. When he left the company, the company just turned off those residuals out of retaliation. So now he's owed a huge amount of money in unpaid residuals. 
Now, thinking the best defense is a good offense, the company filed a complaint against our client, claiming the usual violation of trade secret nonsense. Now, you'll just have to take my word for it when I tell you, but there's no violation of any trade secrets in this case. And even if the company could show a violation, there simply is no way it would be damaged given this particular industry. So the whole thing is nonsense. But the company is using the legal action, hoping to wear down our client. Now, I've handled a lot of these cases over the years, and the ploy always seems to be the same. The company and its attorneys will try to deplete my client's resources, and knowing it cannot possibly win the case, probably on the eve of trial, the company will graciously offer to dismiss its complaint if our client will agree to a reduction in the residuals that are owed, or, or it might even offer to dismiss its complaint and pay all the residuals if my client will just agree not to compete. So that's the sort of goals they're shooting for, and they're using the litigation process as a, as a hammer to achieve those goals. Now, historically, and especially in this case, there are two weapons of choice used to try to beat down the former employee when you bring one of these types of actions. They use injunctions and discovery. The company will go to court and seek an injunction claiming that the former employee is using trade secrets. That's a hard request to beat because what's the court going to say? Oh, no, 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 you, you go ahead and use your former employer's trade secrets. Of course, the court's not going to say that. So the safer route for the course to, excuse me, the safer route for the court to follow is to say, well, former employee, you say you're not using any trade secrets, but the company says you are using their trade secrets. So let's just handle it this way. I'll just order you not to use any trade secrets, and it should be no problem because you already say you're not using them. So no harm, no foul. But here's the problem with that approach. Once the company has the injunction in hand, it will simply claim that everything the defendant is doing is a use of trade secrets and is therefore a violation of the court's order. It doesn't matter whether it can be proven, the injunction can be used for that harassment. Now, I'll show you how ridiculous this can get. I once had a case where my client had been partners with another guy in a restaurant. Let's call it an Italian restaurant. So my client announces one day that he's leaving the partnership to start his own uh, restaurant in another county. It wasn't even a competing business. It was a long distance from the other restaurant, the original restaurant. So there was no competition at all to his former restaurant, but the partner from that restaurant wanted him to stay because my client was the one that, that had always run the place. So he feared, and it, it turned out to be true, that if my client left the restaurant, the restaurant would go out of business. So he files an action doing the usual nonsense of, oh yeah, he's stealing trade secrets. Well, what are the trade secrets in a restaurant? He actually went to court and sought an injunction to prevent my client from using any of the recipes he'd used at the former restaurant. I wanted to fight that because I thought it was kind of ridiculous, but my client said, hey, it's no problem. I'm not going to use any of the recipes from the former restaurant. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm leaving. I, I the, the restaurant I was at serves cuisine from northern Italy. I've always wanted to start a restaurant where we specialize in cuisine from southern Italy. So that's one of the reasons I'm leaving. I just don't want to be a partner anymore, but I also want to be able to create, you know, explore my art and create the, the recipes that I want to create. So, so no problem. Go ahead and stipulate that I won't use any of the recipes from the former restaurant. But the injunction gave the former partner a means to harass my client. He actually sent a spy into my client's restaurant, and then he prepared a contempt motion supported by a declaration from the spy that the spy was very familiar with the meals served at the original restaurant, and he was absolutely convinced that the food he was eating at the second restaurant, the new restaurant, was the same food he'd been eating at the first restaurant. Now, it, it got thrown out. We defeated the, the, the motion for contempt, but it just shows you what they can do. I mean, all we had to do was show the menus from the two restaurants, and there was, there was no overlap. 
And the judge quite properly said, hey, you know, this is all a matter of opinion. You're saying the food tastes the same. There's, there's really no way to establish that. So he threw it out. But it was still it was still a form of harassment. So you can't look at these cases logically. Just as with a slap case, the goal isn't to prevail. The goal is to harass. I've even been involved in a couple of cases where the opposition will go into court and say, I want an injunction whereby before our former employee can call on any clients, they have to contact us and ask if that's one of our existing clients. And we will, of course, say, well, we need a list. We need to know which ones are your former clients. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't give you a list of our clients because that's the trade secret we're trying to protect. You're saying you're not, you're saying you're not using our client list. So this is the best way to test that. In other words, every time you're thinking about calling on a client, you pick up a phone, you call us, and you say, can we call on Xerox today? Can we call on, you know, Riverside Community College today? You can imagine how that would be a uh, technique to use to hold back our client. In other words, they would immediately then contact the person that they've been told about and say, well, you really shouldn't do business with this guy because we've got a lawsuit pending against him. And, and if you do business with him, we may have to sue you and that sort of thing. So uh, it's never been successful, but it just shows you how they can use these techniques as a form of harassment. So back to our case, the company had sought the usual injunction, but the request had been denied. So that form of harassment was taken out of their arsenal. That left the company and its attorneys with only the second form of harassment, the discovery. Now, if you think you've seen discovery used to harass, you haven't seen anything compared to this case. I can't swear to it, but from all indications, the firm has assigned one young associate to work full-time just on the discovery in this case. Now, it is fairly routine that when I check my email in the morning, I'll be met with two letters from opposing counsel. I say letters because he always prepares it as a letter, saves it in PDF, and then emails it to me and mails it to me. So I'll come in at, well, I'll be honest, I get to the office about nine. So I get in about nine and there's already a letter waiting from opposing counsel that he's either sent the previous night or he has sent at eight o'clock that morning. And if I don't check my mail until 10 or 11 o'clock, there'll be two letters waiting for me. One will be the letter he sent the night before or at 8 o'clock in the morning. And the second letter will be the one at 11 o'clock saying, you haven't responded to my prior correspondence. And since you haven't responded to my prior correspondence, I'm going to bring a motion to compel, uh, arguing that you uh, refuse to meet and confer. And if I don't respond to that one, there'll be another one about three o'clock uh, saying all the same things. So it appears this is all this guy does all day is, is, is review the discovery and, and send threatening letters. Now, we were brought into the case about eight months after the complaint was filed. And when I reviewed the file, I saw that this sort of thing had been going on the entire time. And here's the sort of things they threatened to bring motions to compel over. We, um, well, actually, former counsel had produced some documents in response to a demand for documents, and one of the documents was a little bit fuzzy. It, 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 you could read the document, no question about that, but they threatened a motion to compel, and they wanted a supplemental response as to that document. They wanted a clearer copy, not because they couldn't read it, but because they thought they might use it at trial, and they were concerned that if they blew it up, uh, for the jury, it wouldn't be legible at that point. So give us a document or we're going to bring a motion to compel a clearer document. What else did they do? Oh, I scheduled a deposition of one of their officers and they immediately noticed an ex parte hearing and filed for a protective order. Now, why were they filing for a protective order? Was it because I was taking the deposition of some high ranking official in the organization that had no relevance to the case? No, 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 none of that. They wanted to 
prevent me from taking the deposition of the officer because they were claiming there'd been issues with the discoveries for so long with former counsel that they weren't comfortable that they had all the documents we were going to rely on in this case, and they didn't feel that it was appropriate for us to be taking the deposition of one of their officers until they had the complete universe of documents. Well, wait a second. We could have taken that deposition 10 days after the case was filed. They wouldn't have had any documents then, so there is no, you don't get to take our deposition until we've seen every document you intend to rely on objection to a deposition notice. So that wasn't successful. Oh, and then they, they, I scheduled, this one really cracked me up. I scheduled a local deposition and again, they run to court ex parte. And this time they did so on a motion to shorten time for a pro hoc vice order. With me on the case taking the deposition, there was no attorney in any of their 30 offices with the fortitude to sit across from me at the deposition. Okay, I made that part up. But they did state that they needed an attorney from a firm in New York admitted to attend the deposition here in California. So nobody in the entire country, nobody at any of their firms, uh, any of their offices uh, was up to the task. They had to get an attorney from another firm in New York. Sorry about all the war stories, but it was just so amazing to me. They, they do this weird thing when they screw up a document demand or other discovery request. I'll simplify this to save time, but it's basically this. when when they They'll make a document demand, and it'll say something like, produce all documents relating to any communications you've had with Time Warner. Well, that's a Scrivener's error. Time Warner isn't a party to this contract, There's, excuse me, to this action. There's no reason they would want information concerning Time Warner. It's just they're using a document that they apparently used in the past when they were suing Time Warner. And so they, um, or, or Time Warner was a party to the contract or something, I don't know. But they're using that, so they, they just screwed up and they didn't change the name. So how do we respond to that? Well, we, we do a relevancy objection. The irrelevant Time Warner has nothing to do with this case, not likely to lead to admissible evidence, blah, blah, blah. But that's where the weird part comes in. They'll then send a meet and confer letter and they'll state, well, when we said Time Warner, that was a Scrivener's error. Thank you very much for pointing that out to us. What we meant to say was, and then they'll list the proper party. Now that we've clarified what we meant by our document demand, you must within three days produce all documents responsive to the request as clarified or we will move to compel. What? It doesn't work that way. We answered your demand. You just have to ask the proper demand in the next uh, set of document demands. So, okay, I've given you a, uh, just a, a little feel of how they're using the discovery process in an attempt to beat down our client. But here's the problem. The attempt to harass with an injunction failed, but they're doing all they can with the discovery process. But then they screwed up. They strayed from the game plan and got themselves in trouble. And here's what happened. While this action was going on, my client sent out a cautionary email to employees of the company, warning them about the shenanigans of the company. He explained that the company had not only breached the contracts with him by cutting off his residuals, it had done the same to someone else. Now, that was a completely true statement. No problem with that. The email then directed the recipients to reports about the company published by Moody's and Bloomberg, as well as press releases that the company itself had released, saying that the company is in some really serious financial straits. It's, it's losing millions of dollars. So that was completely true. He's, he's not even forming an opinion. He's just directing them to others. So no problem with that. He also sent out a press release summarizing some events in, in this litigation. One of the things he talked about, when we took the deposition of the former vice president of the company, he took the fifth and refused to answer any of my questions. I mean, that is pretty damning stuff. Here we are taking the deposition of a former executive of the company to ask him about this case. Why aren't you paying my client his residuals? And he takes the fifth. So 
my client felt compelled to send out a press release to that effect. But the press release accurately reported those facts. So there's, there's simply nothing wrong with the press release. So the company is using this litigation to try to keep my client from competing, but it certainly doesn't want him talking about this litigation or the company while it's going on. So what, what does the company do? What does a company do when it wants to silence criticism? It files a slap, of course. The company responded to the email and the press release by amending its complaint, adding causes of action for defamation arising from the email and the press release. And even amending the complaint turned into a huge deal. We were at a case management conference and, and the court is about to set the trial date. And opposing counsel says something like, well, Your Honor, I'm not sure we should really set a trial date because we're contemplating maybe thinking about someday amending our complaint. And we won't be making the decision about whether maybe someday we'll be amending the complaint for another month or two. You can imagine hearing that the judge isn't very happy. So the judge says, gets outraged and says, you have 30 days. If you're going to amend this complaint, you have 30 days, right? With 2020 hindsight, I probably should have asked the court for clarification of that statement, but never in my wildest dreams did it occur to me that opposing counsel would interpret it to mean that the court was granting leave to file an amended complaint. I mean, who would ever interpret it that way? Well, opposing counsel did, but when I claimed otherwise, they set a hearing for a motion to amend set just before the trial date. Well, that wouldn't have worked. We would have waited eight months or however long it is for this case to go to trial and we would have found out just on the eve of trial whether the motion to amend is going to be granted. I didn't want to proceed in that manner, so to avoid that scenario, I stipulated they could file the amended complaint. Amendments are liberally granted, so the court probably would have granted it anyway. And that's when opposing counsel stepped in it. It turned out to be a great move to allow them to amend because the possibility of adding those claims for defamation in order to gain more leverage was just too irresistible uh, to opposing counsel, and they filed a big fat slap. The amended complaint added four causes of action for libel, trade libel. Well, that's an issue unto itself. Normally, it makes no sense to uh, allege libel and then trade libel. But anyway, they allege libel, trade libel, false advertising, and unfair competition, all based on the email and the press release. Now, under the heading of you can't make this stuff up, here are some of the things they alleged were defamatory. My client provided a link to the article by Moody's, and he said, As one analyst says, the chances of the company defaulting on its debts is 100%. Well, that's defamatory, according to the complaint, because when you read that report by the analyst, it actually says the chances of the company defaulting on its debts is close to 100%. So leaving out that word close was apparently defamatory. Apparently, in the mind of opposing counsel, uh, the difference is defamatory because someone wanting to invest in the company would be absolutely put off by reading that the chance of default is 100%. But if they knew it was only close to 100%, well, then they'd be pulling out their checkbooks. My client also wrote that his complaint against the company alleges 12 causes of action, including breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, among others. Why is that defamatory? Well, because according to the complaint, my client did not file a complaint. He filed a cross-complaint. And the cause of action for breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing was thrown out on a demur several months ago. That was before I was involved. So again, for that to have caused any loss of reputation, we have to assume that someone considering working for this company or perhaps investing in the company would say, you know, I'm fine with a company that doesn't pay its employees so long as that's only alleged in a cross complaint and so long as there's no cause of action for a breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. But if there's a complaint that alleges breach of the implied covenant, well, then the deal's off. You see by stating the statement how absurd that becomes. So as you can see, the defamation causes of action are ridiculous, so I filed an anti-slap motion. When I served the anti-slap motion, it was pretty classic. I filed the anti-slap motion, let's say, on a Monday, and I served it by mail. 
So the next morning, Tuesday, I was, of course, greeted with yet another email about some imagined discovery issue from opposing counsel. Opposing counsel at that point in time did not yet know about the anti-slap motion we'd filed. So I replied to the email stating that we would need to table any discussion about this latest discovery issue because there was a discovery stay in place, me having just filed a anti-slap motion. I very nicely attached a copy of the conformed face page that my attorney service had provided to me, and opposing counsel immediately wrote back and said, I've checked the docket and there, no, there is no indication that you filed any motion of any sort. So I replied back, uh, yeah, Los Angeles Superior Court is slow getting things indexed. That's why I attached a copy of the conformed face page. Since that communication, we've not heard boo from opposing counsel. It's been at least five days and we've had nothing but blissful silence. This is the longest we've ever gone without a communication from opposing counsel as far as I recall. So this leads us to the issue of discovery. So what's the company and its counsel going to do? They wanted to use discovery, possibly in an injunction, and then these crazy defamation causes of action to beat up on our client. And now all three methods have been blocked. The injunction was denied, although counsel's already informed the court that they intend to revisit the issue of the injunction. So they're going to try to get that back on the table. But because they filed the slap, all the discovery is now stayed. What's even worse for plaintiffs is that the motion isn't set to be heard until February of next year. Well, what about the 30-day hearing deadline, you ask? Well, we begged and pleaded for an earlier hearing date. And in fact, the clerk originally assigned us a hearing date in March, but due to the docket conditions, the absolute best she could do was move it up to February when we were pleading. We've also noticed during her law in motion, the judge always announces that bringing an ex-party application to move up a hearing date is a pointless gesture. So we're covered. The DACA conditions won't permit the hearing to take place any sooner, and that's all that CCP Section 425.16 requires. Moving ex parte for an earlier date would be a pointless act in this court. So the opposition won't be able to use its primary harassment tool, Discovery, for seven months. In order to get back to using the Discovery process to try to beat up on my client, can the company get around the Discovery stay? The answer to that question begins with the plain wording of CCP Section 425.16G. That section provides all discovery proceedings in the action shall be stayed upon the filing of a noticed motion made pursuant to the section. The stay of discovery shall remain in effect until notice of entry of the order ruling on the motion. The court on notice motion and for good cause shown may order that specified discovery be conducted notwithstanding the subdivision. So there are actually a couple of worrisome words in that section. We all know that discovery is stayed on the filing of an anti-slap motion, but what about the discovery motions? Are motions the proceedings mentioned in the statute? Also, what is this other specified discovery that the court is permitted to allow? Well, let's begin with the first word, proceedings. What is meant by discovery proceedings? Well, in this case, opposing counsel threatens motions to compel just about every day on the discovery responses we've, we've served over the past eight months. So can they make good on those threats and bring a motion to compel for already existing discovery? Or what if they had already filed a motion to compel? They haven't, but just for sake of argument, what if they'd already filed a motion to compel at the time we brought our anti-slap, at the time we filed our anti-slap motion? Can a discovery motion proceed if an anti-slap motion is filed? The answers to those questions are answered by a case called Brits versus Superior Court out of the 6th District. Brits was a fun case. The procedural history is pretty convoluted, but here are the crucial points. There were actually two anti-slap motions filed in the case at various times. The distinction between those two anti-slap motions is not really important for our discussion, so let's just say that plaintiff brought a motion to compel discovery, and on the day the opposition to the motion was due, defendant filed an anti-slap motion. 
But the court went forward with the motion to compel, holding that an anti-slap motion does not stay an already existing motion to compel. Since defendant had not opposed the motion to compel, believing that the anti-slap motion had stayed it, the court granted the motion and imposed $5,000 worth of sanctions. Defendant took the matter up on a writ, and the Court of Appeal agreed agreed with defendant that an anti-slap motion does stay any pending motions to compel. The trial court was ordered to vacate its order on the motion to compel and on the sanctions order. So that was the good news from Britt. Britt makes it very clear that discovery proceedings are everything having to do with discovery. They're all frozen once an anti-slap motion is filed. The statute means exactly what it says. The scary part from Britt came from the motion for attorney fees. The defendant moved for attorney fees from the anti-slap motion asking for a very reasonable $13,000. Now, this is not part of the holding, and even the Court of Appeal had to sort of read between the lines and guess a little to come up with what the court had done below. But basically, the trial court reduced the attorney fees on the anti-slap motion from $13,000 to just $5,000 because defense counsel had not met and conferred with opposing counsel before bringing the motion. We used to have a rule here in Orange County that uh, was actually pretty much what the judge was saying here. In, in Orange County, and it was great because... Uh, attorneys from out of the county would always fall prey to this this local rule. But the local rule said that before you could bring any motion, discovery motions were exempted from this because they already have a meet and confer requirement. But any other motion brought in the court, before you could file the motion, you had to meet and confer with opposing counsel. And then when you filed the motion, you had to attach a declaration specifying your efforts to meet and confer with opposing counsel. Everybody had a blind spot for that. Everybody would forget it. And so you would go to court and just motion after motion after motion would be denied for failing to comply with this local rule. Well, when they did the process where they can, they basically decided to make all the court rules uniform and got rid of a lot of the local court rules, that rule was, was jettisoned. But that's basically what the judge was saying here. Well, you could have met with opposing counsel, told them that their the complaint they filed is a slap, and they could have fixed it and you wouldn't have had to bring the motion. So therefore, I'm not going to give you my, I'm not going to give you the $13,000 in attorney's fees. I'm only going to give you uh, $5,000. Again, that's not the holding from the case, but it's a terrible idea. And if you actually did that, it could constitute malpractice. The purpose of the anti-slap statute is to afford a quick way to dispose of slaps. If counsel is presented with a slap, filing an anti-slap motion locks in the pleading as stated, preventing any amendment. Remember what SLAP stands for, Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. The purpose of the complaint is to harass. You're not going to call the harasser and say, you know, your complaint as currently stated is a SLAP and, and you really should do something about that. Well, the harasser is going to say, well, well thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll go back and see if I can amend it so I can get around the SLAP statute so I can continue to harass your client. Like I said, it's, it's a terrible idea and not in the best interests of your client. So back to our case. Since Britt holds that even a pending motion to compel a stayed, then it's equally clear that opposing counsel won't be able to get into mischief by bringing any motions to compel until the anti-slap motion is decided. That's a dead end for opposing counsel, so they may try to find solace in the second ambiguous word in section 425.16, namely that the court may order specified discovery. In this case, there are 15 causes of action, three defendants, And 11 of the causes of action have nothing to do with the slap. We're only going after four of the causes of action. And the causes of action that we're going after are only asserted against one of the three defendants. So I'm I'm anticipating that counsel may try this argument. Well, judge, we understand and appreciate that the anti-slap statute stays any discovery once a motion is filed. But here, there's 11 causes of action not related to the anti-slap motion. And two of the defendants have nothing to do with the anti-slap motion. 
So if we promise to be really good and not conduct any discovery relating to the defamation claims, can we go forward with discovery on the other causes of action related to the other defendants? Will that argument work? Well, again, if the court follows the law, the answer is no. As set forth in CCP section 425.16G, a plaintiff must show good cause before taking any discovery after an anti-slap motion has been filed. And here's the important part. Good cause means only discovery relevant to the plaintiff's burden of establishing a reasonable probability of prevailing on the claim. Discovery that is not relevant to the legal defense being asserted by the defendant in the anti-slap motion is not permitted. That's the case of Blanchard versus DirecTV, Inc., So consider how narrow the discovery would be in this case. Plaintiff said it was defamatory for my client to have claimed that he filed a complaint when he really filed a cross-complaint. Wow, that's going to be some pretty intensive discovery there. Oh, I didn't even tell you about this allegation. The email in question said something like, check out these reports from Wall Street analysts, and then he provided hyperlinks to these, uh, these reports by Moody's and Bloomberg. So plaintiff's amended complaint alleges that that was defamatory because the analysts really aren't from Wall Street. Now, for extra credit, log this little bit of strategy away when dealing with a plaintiff who is moving for relief from the discovery stay. This is a super secret strategy, and I don't want opposing counsel to know about it, so let's just keep this between you and me, okay? As we discussed, if a plaintiff does move for permission to conduct discovery, any relief granted must be limited to evidence necessary to prove the plaintiff's case. And again, any discovery that is not relevant to a defense being asserted by defendant in the anti-slap motion is not permitted. In other words, when a defendant brings an anti-slap motion, he argues two things. First, the conduct complained of falls under the anti-slap statute and the plaintiff cannot prevail because of the whatever the defense is, fill in the blank. The defense may be based on an absolute privilege, for example, as in the case of a statement made in court, or as here the defense may be that the statements made were true. If granted leave, plaintiff can only conduct discovery on those issues. So often when somebody brings leave uh, for leave to conduct discovery after an anti-slap motion has been filed, they'll say, well, we need to conduct discovery to, to prove malice, for example. That, that's a big one. Uh, defendant contends that plaintiff is a public figure or that the comments were subject to a limited privilege. So plaintiff seeks permission to conduct discovery on malice. So with these concepts firmly in mind, let's get back to the extra credit strategy. Let's say you file an anti-slap motion based on a few defenses and plaintiff moves for relief from the stay to conduct discovery as to one of those defenses. Plaintiff thinks it can beat that one defense and therefore can show a prima facie case on that basis. When plaintiff moves for leave to conduct that discovery, you can defeat the request by abandoning that defense. If you have others that will work, just give it up. Just say, hey, I don't even want to fight about it. I don't want him to be able to conduct discovery. That's the whole purpose of the anti-slap statute is to avoid discovery. If he's claiming he needs discovery on XYZ because that defeats this particular defense, we will just waive that defense. This is the case of Balzaga versus Fox News. Balzaga versus Fox News. In that case, Fox News did a report about a guy who'd been assaulted by illegal aliens at the border. Now, somehow he was able to take photos of his attackers, and he turned that all over to the police, but he felt like the police were not doing enough to uh, catch the attackers. He was conducting his own manhunt looking for the criminals using the photos he'd taken. So during the story, Fox News showed the photos. It had a big banner reading, Manhunt on the Border. So the plaintiffs, some of the ones in, uh, in the pictures, sued, claiming that the story gave the appearance that they were subject, they were the subject of a police manhunt. Fox filed an anti-slap motion alleging two defenses. They, they said, well, the statements are true, 
and were protected under the fair comment provision. So the plaintiff moved for, for permission to conduct discovery on the truth defense. So Fox News just waived that defense. Okay, we won't argue that it was true. We're just going to rely entirely on fair comment. Well, because they were relying entirely on fair comment, it just became an issue of how you interpret the words that they used. So the trial court denied the request for discovery and said, you don't, you no longer need to conduct discovery because you don't have to show the truth or the falsity of the statements. Um, they're only relying on fair comment. The anti-slap motion was granted because under the fair reporting standard, the issue then became whether Fox had ever actually stated or implied that the manhunt was being conducted by law enforcement. And the court found that it had not done so. So uh, it denied the anti-slap motion, or excuse me, it granted the anti-slap motion, and the, that was upheld on appeal. So again, that's just between you and me. Whenever you get a motion for relief from the stay, take a look at what defense plaintiff is attacking and see if you can waive it. In your opposition to the motion for relief from stay, just explain to the court that you will waive that defense so that no discovery is necessary. Okay. Back to our case, even if plaintiffs can get around the statutory limitations on discovery following an anti-slap motion, they would run into a procedural problem in this court. Pursuant to CCP section 425.16G, any request for relief from the discovery stay must be made by a noticed motion. So we end up with a huge catch-22 here for the plaintiffs. Even with our best pleading, pretty pleased with sugar on top, we couldn't get the court to agree to move our anti-slap motion up to be heard any sooner than February of next year. So presumably, if plaintiffs filed a motion for relief from the discovery stay, they would run into the same docketing problem. And one final word about discovery following the filing of an anti-slap motion. The discretion standard when deciding if discovery should be permitted is decidedly slanted in favor of the defendant. A trial court's decision to disallow discovery will not be disturbed unless it is arbitrary, capricious, or patently absurd. That's the case of Tuto Salibi Corp. versus Herrera, T-U-T-O. It's always a good thing to point that out to the court. Dear court, your discretion to disallow discovery won't be disturbed unless it is patently absurd. But on the other hand, a number of decisions have held that it is an abuse of discretion to permit discovery because that flies in the face of the anti-slap statute's purpose. So I think it's safe to say that plaintiffs won't be getting relief to conduct any discovery anytime soon, but I'll let you know how it goes. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the California Slap Law podcast at iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please call me at 714-954-0700 if you have any questions. And until next time, try not to slap anyone. The amended complaint filed by plaintiffs was such an obvious slap that it has not escaped me that they may be crazy like a fox. As my client stated in his email, Moody's and Bloomberg have reported that the company is very likely to default on its debts and that liquidation is possible. So perhaps the company is contemplating bankruptcy. When we came into the case, plaintiffs were fighting desperately to set the trial date far into the future. And when that didn't work, they could have decided to file a slap knowing we would bring a motion and knowing that this court takes forever to set hearing dates. If the company is contemplating bankruptcy, perhaps the plan is to push the case past the petition date. Now, I will say I hate seeing the litigation process used in this manner to try to keep my client from competing, but there have been some pretty entertaining moments in this case. 
If you Google the words foolish attorney, foolish attorney, an article I wrote comes up in the number one position. Now, I could take that personally, but I'm going to assume that Google isn't commenting on the author of the article, but rather is referring to the title of the article, which is Don't Be That Attorney, 10 Ways to Make Yourself Look Foolish. It's one of my, by far, it is the most read article that I've ever published. So if you're interested, uh, just Google Foolish Attorney and look for the article, 10 Ways to Make Yourself Look Foolish. Now, as the article explains, there are procedural mistakes I see attorneys make over and over. And I got so tired of explaining them to opposing counsel that I just wrote this article. When opposing counsel in one of my cases makes one of these mistakes, I just send them the link to the article instead of wasting my client's money writing a letter to educate opposing counsel on some procedural thing. So, for example, it it is apparently contrary to the understanding of many attorneys, but when you serve a court document on opposing counsel, the proof of service should not be signed because you're attesting to the fact that you've already mailed it past tense. So this isn't something I'm making up. It's not some hyper-technical interpretation. In the article, I I direct you to the case law and all that, that that explains why court documents sent to opposing counsel should be unsigned. But I occasionally still get crazy letters from opposing counsel claiming that service of a document is invalid because the proof of service wasn't signed. I just send them to the article, and that's usually the end of it. And another thing that sometimes comes up is an attorney threatening to seek sanctions for my client's failure to pay sanctions. There are no sanctions for failing to pay sanctions. If the court awards sanctions and your client does not pay them, they can be reduced to a judgment and they can be collected like any other judgment. So when the judge orders a party to pay discovery sanctions in 20 days, for example... What the court is really saying is you have 20 days to pay the sanctions before they become a judgment. It's not like sanctions being paid to the court. Yeah, you can get in a lot of trouble if you don't pay sanctions to the court. But when the court orders discovery sanctions, those just become a judgment if they're not paid. Now, I can't remember the last time when one of my clients was ordered to pay sanctions for something that occurred while I was their attorney. But on occasion, I've taken over a case where a motion to compel is already pending. And that's what happened here. When we came into the case, a motion to compel discovery was already pending. So we went and argued the opposition and won on two of the four issues. But the judge did award a small amount of sanctions for the motion, a tiny, tiny fraction of what the plaintiff had requested. So opposing counsel did the routine that so many attorneys feel compelled to do. He sends me an email and he says, The court awarded sanctions, ha ha ha, and if your client does not pay them immediately, I will go to court and seek a contempt order and ask for more sanctions, ha ha ha. I made up the ha 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 part, he didn't actually type that in the email. So I responded with a link to my article, which explains why he can't do that. It's always funny because you see these attorneys that posture, and when they kind of get called on their posturing, the only response they know is to posture some more. So he writes back and says, Did you not think I would realize this is your own article? If the only authority you can provide for your claim that I can't seek sanctions for failing to pay sanctions is an article you yourself wrote, I don't find that very persuasive. I normally don't engage once a conversation has become absurd, but I, I felt compelled to respond. So I just wrote back and I said, well, did you happen to see the authority I provided in the article that I wrote? And his response to that was, I don't want to talk anymore about your article. Yes, opposing counsel, I think that's probably best. Thanks for listening. See you next week.